Hello, and welcome back to the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino, the communications specialist in Syracuse University's Office of Alumni Engagement. I'm also a 2003 graduate of the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications with a degree in broadcast journalism. I am so glad you found our podcast. Well, folks, today on the podcast, we are thrilled to be welcoming on an accomplished and acclaimed novelist. Her name is Liz Strout, who earned her degree from the College of Law in 1982. She has published seven books, and they have garnered plenty of major literary awards, including a Pulitzer Prize for Olive Kitteridge in 2008. That work ended up being adapted into an Emmy Award-winning miniseries starring the lovely Frances McDormand. Uh, She is an accomplished author. She's a big name in the current literary world, uh, and she's our guest today on the Cuse Conversations Alumni Podcast. Liz, thank you for taking the time to join us. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. I find it fascinating that you go from You get your law degree here at Syracuse in 82, and yet your career has mostly been focused on novels and the written word. How did you blend those two interests, going to law school and then becoming a novelist? What was the transition that got us from point A to point B? Right. Well, I had always wanted and known that I was a writer. I wanted to be a writer, but but more importantly, I knew that I was a writer from really quite a young age. And then when I left college, I had a number of different jobs. You know, I worked in a shoe mill. I worked as a secretary. I worked as a waitress. I worked as a piano player in a bar. I had many, many jobs. And then I finally, you know, all the time I was writing and sending out stories. And I finally began to realize that nobody was interested in my work at all. And I thought, well, I'm not getting any younger. Maybe I should go to law school. And I went to law school because I had a very deep social conscience, as I still do. And I thought, okay, then I'm going to go to law school and I'm going to do good work for society. And then I'll write at night, which was a little bit misguided because I didn't know how you know, much being a lawyer in law school was going to take up. But that's why I, I went to law school. And um, I'm not at all sorry I went it, for many reasons that we can talk about later. But I did drop out after my first year. And um, because I just wanted to write so much. And so I stayed in Syracuse and I worked at the um, department stores downtown. And again, it was a secretary in a law firm. I just, you know, did everything. And then I finally realized, okay. And I wrote a novel during that time. But um, it's a still unpublished novel and will remain so, I hope. (laughs) But anyway, um, but then I realized, okay, if I go back to law school, let me make sure that I'm doing something that I'm really interested in. So I got a gerontology degree at the same time that I finished law school, because I've always been interested in old people, older people in society. And so I did, I got a gerontology certificate from the School of Social Work at the same time that I got my law degree, thinking that I would study, I mean, thinking that I would do, you know, gerontological law. But in fact, I worked at legal services um, for six months. And that was a, a job that I wanted. I very much wanted to be doing that. But I was really a very bad lawyer. And um, it was striking to me how bad a lawyer I was. But legal service is very kind. And, um, but nevertheless, the union had the last one hired, first one fired rule. And this was during the Reagan years and there were cuts. And so the um, fellow who ran it called me in and said, I'm so sorry, but you know, we're going to have to let you go because of the funding. And I was like, that's okay. <laughs> Thinking, yes. And I've actually never gone back 
to law since then because at that point I was able to begin to get published in magazines. And then when we moved to Manhattan, um, the JD turned out to be a graduate degree and I was able to teach at Manhattan Community College in the English department as an adjunct because I had enough stories that were beginning to get published then. And the chairman liked me and said, your, J your JD will be a graduate degree, don't worry. So it all worked out. People take linear paths and they take nonlinear paths to get to where they are right. in life. And, and clearly everything that happened, happened for a reason and really seemed to work out, especially given the fact of your accomplishments as an author. Uh, you had mentioned from an early age, you knew you wanted to be a writer. Why was that? What was it about writing and the written word that really appealed to you? I think that it was my mother's influence, basically, because um, I think I've only come to recently realize that I think she wanted to be a writer herself. And um, she gave me notebooks at a very young age. As soon as I could write words, she gave me notebooks, you know, the kind that had those big fat lines and, you know, whatever, hyphenated lines in between. I don't even know if they're still available. But she gave me notebooks at a very, very young age. So from the moment that I could write words, I was writing sentences. And she would say, write down what you did today. And I did. So I just, from the moment I could um, think, I was thinking in terms of sentences, it felt like. So I just always understood that I would be a writer. And, and she, her sense of perceptiveness was one that I feel like I inherited. And, um, you know, we would go places and she would, we would watch people while my father went into a store or something like that to do the, to do his business. We would sit in the car and she would notice somebody walking by and comment and it would just inflame my curiosity about whoever was walking by. And, you know, I just became fascinated and interested in, in people, which I think you need to do if you're going to be a fiction writer. Yeah. No, you absolutely have to have that curiosity uh, and that fascination to get to tell because you're really, you know, when you're creating, I don't have to tell you this, but when you're creating works of fiction, you're creating characters, you're creating these brand new people right. that you hope, you know, the, the readers will identify with. And this brings me to a good question for you, Liz. I hope they're all good questions, but yeah. um, <laughs> there's a, a quote of yours that I love. Before we go into your career and your, your works as an author, I really love this quote that uh, you have on your website where you say, we want to know, I think, what it's like to be another person because somehow this helps us position our own self in the world. What are we without this curiosity? What does that quote mean to you and why is that so important? You know, I think that, um, I think that curiosity is a really important quality for people to have. And um, some are more curious than others, but I think that we should always be looking at ways to um, fan the flames of curiosity because I think that the more we can concern ourselves with what it feels like to be another person, and I really believe this, the more empathic we can be. And we all know what the world looks like without empathy. So I, um, I think that there's, for me, there's a direct connection between wanting to know what it feels like to be another person and honestly having a better world as a result of it. How do you go about that process of putting yourself in the shoes? You mentioned, you know, when your mom would make observations when you were younger, but how, how do you then take that fascination with learning right. other people and, and carving characters? Right. You know, um, it's interesting because I have only recently realized consciously how much time I've spent in my life watching people and listening to people. It's been so intuitive for me to do so. And especially when I was living in New York City, you know, it's just filled with people and it's fascinating. 
um, just sit on a subway and you can see all, you know, tons of people and, and, but I would watch people and I still do just really watch them and listen to them. And, and when I would sit on a subway, I would watch, you know, perhaps the woman across from me and I would think, right, like her, her jeans are tight. Like, let's think what that feels like. I mean, this would all happen just intuitively and instinctively is what I'm saying. And so I would feel like, okay, I know what that feels like. Now, you know, if I crossed my legs like that, or if my expression, if my facial expression was like hers, what would that be like? Does that mean that she's angry or whatever? You know, so it's just, I've just been studying people for as long as I can remember in that sense. And then when they become a character to me, um, I don't really know exactly how that happens. That's an interesting thing. The, the truthful answer is I don't actually know where my characters come from, but I sort of feel, but they become very real to me. And if they're that real, then I keep them. And if they're not that real, then they get tossed on the floor, literally. <laughs> <You know? laughs> the book, Olive Kitteridge, it's set in a coastal town in Maine. And for our audience, you were born in Maine and grew up in small towns across Maine and New Hampshire. Um, did you draw from any of your real life experiences, places you lived, uh, anything along those lines when it came to writing this Pulitzer Prize winning book, Olive Kitteridge? It's funny because yes and no. I mean, the people are absolutely made up in that book. Um, but, you know, one, the closest example I can give you is from Olive Again, which is my last book, which is The Return of Olive Kittredge. And there's a story in there about a young woman who's cleaning house for a, an older couple. And I did, in fact, clean house for many people when I was a young girl, basically, when I was a teenager. And when my brother read that story, he goes, that didn't really happen, did it? And I said, no, of course it didn't happen. This is fiction. So anyone who, I mean, the act of cleaning the house was something that was familiar for, to me because I had gone into people's houses and cleaned their houses. But what happens is that I'm not at all Kaylee Callahan, who is that young woman. I'm not even remotely her, but I'm able to take on her persona and move around that house with her. And, and then she does things that of course I did not do, which my brother was so glad to hear. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> um, so in that sense, you know, there are touchstones that I use. Um, that are, you know, places that I can visualize and things that I can visualize. But the people are always made up. They're just, they just are who they are. Is there any hint of truth when it comes to, you know, your characters, for example, uh, and, and Alf Kittredge of you, maybe they did something that you wanted to do or never got a chance to do, or is it purely just a fictional character that happenstantially happens to be based uh, in towns that have some of the same rustic uh, qualities that you grew up in. Yeah, it's that. That I mean, it's not, they don't do things that I would want to do because they're not me. I mean, that's what's so interesting. It's like these people are not me. And that's why my brother was so glad to hear that because <laughs> they're not me. And I understand the, I understand from a reader's point of view or from a nonfiction writer's point of view, how confusing it might be to think, oh, well, that must be her or something because, you know, she used to clean houses. But um, but no, these are people that I just sort of follow them through. I report on what they do. And um, that's, that's my role is to write down as honestly as I can what they're up to. 
what was that moment like, by the way, when you, how did you find out and, and, and were you surprised when, uh, when you got the, and how, how'd you get the call? How'd you get the notification about you winning the Pulitzer? Right. It was a very strange thing. I had been on a, um, I'd been on a lecture tour. So, um, out in California and they had parked me in, um, Las Vegas for the weekend. So Monday I had to give a talk in Las Vegas and then rush for a plane back to California. So I gave the talk and I turned my phone off and this fellow drove me to the airport and then his phone. And then I, I glanced at my phone and I realized, wow, I've got a lot of missed phone calls, but I just, I was trying to be polite and I didn't, you know, I was talking with him and then his phone went off and they had tracked him down and he handed the phone to me and my agent said, where have you been? Ben, because the time difference, you know, they had, they were, you know, hours earlier and she was just furious because where had I been? I had won the Pulitzer Prize and she said, you're the only person in the whole world that doesn't know this is Pulitzer Day. I can't believe it. Where have you been? And I said, oh, I won? And she said, yes, you won. And all these reporters want to talk to you. And I said, well, I have to get on a plane, but I'm just so excited. I was so excited. I was so happy. I remember I actually told the woman I was standing in front of in the line to go through security. I said, I just won the Pulitzer Prize. She goes, you did? I can't believe I told a stranger, but she was so happy for me. But anyway, <laughs> it was really, it was a wonderful feeling. There was no downside to it. Well, it's such a tremendous honor and, and congratulations again. I know that uh, it's been a couple of years, but I'm sure you never forget the And, and that story is so great about being at the airport security and telling a random stranger about I winning know. the Pulitzer Prize. I was, so, it's so unlike me to do that, actually. So, and she just couldn't <laughs> have been nicer. I sort of whispered it to her. <laughs> she know, oh, I mean, she was such a lovely woman, but anyway. So if we go back, uh, Liz, and look through some of your works, I know your first uh, book was Amy and Isabel that came out in 1998. That was the first of the seven works of fiction that you've had published. What was the, was there a seminal moment when you realized that, you know, a, you could carve a career out of your writings and B, that there was an audience that was really interested in reading what you had to say? Well, I was never sure that I was going to um, make a living at it, but I know that um, as I wrote that book, it took me, I think, almost seven years to write that book. And I had been writing stories up until then. And, and I actually, um, as I said, I had been teaching at Manhattan Community College. And then I remembered I, I, I decided to take a semester off to finish the book. And, and it's funny to look back to realize how seriously I took myself because there was nobody that was aware that I was really writing except for my husband and daughter. And then, but I just felt like as that book came into fruition for me, I understood that it was a good book. Um, but it still took me um, a couple of years after I finished it to be able to find an agent, to be able to find a publisher. So it was a long haul, but there was some sense that I have always had, even from a young child, that I actually could do this. I mean, I must have had that sense because it would have been crazy to continue for so long with so little <laughs> success, except that I sort of kept thinking I can do this. To someone who's never had the pleasure of reading one of your books, how would you describe your literary writing style? Um, I think that it's a clean, I like to think that it's clean. You know, I don't think that I, I, I mean, it's not, it's not minimalistic at all, but it's clean. I don't think there's extra, there's nothing in there that's extra. I think I take pretty good care to make sure that what I don't need gets dropped on the floor and what remains is what the reader needs. 
Yeah, I think I read a one of your one of the reviews of one of your works. It said you're not you don't write words to impress the reader. Would you agree right. with that assessment? Yes, I don't write to impress the reader. I write I write because I want to invite the reader in. I think about the reader as I write a lot, and I think about the reader as um, somebody that needs my help to go through this journey, to go through this story or book. And um, I need to make the reader feel safe. So I'm never there to impress the reader. I'm never there to show off to the reader. I'm there to help the reader feel safe and say, you know, come with me and you're going to be okay. We're going to go through a variety of experiences that you might not have had yourself, but we're going to be fine. And I think of it as almost a dance with the reader and that I'm in the lead or I have to take the lead. Besides keeping the reader in mind, um, you know, when you, when you're telling these stories, who else inspires you when you write? Right. I think all, all the good writers that that I have read throughout my life have inspired me. And, And I started at a very young age reading adult books. I mean, I don't, I have very few memories of reading children's books at all. And, um, so, you know, starting with, you know, I would make myself lists in high school of um, classics and I would read them and check them off. I mean, this was on my own and it was sort of like giving myself, you know, constant independent studies of, um, you know, making sure that I had read Chekhov and making sure that I had read um, Anna Karenina, you know, these things that I needed to feel, uh, I felt like I needed to read these books. And, um, and it was kind of thrilling because you know, my mother would suggest a few of them, but most of them I sort of discovered on my own because I was younger than people were that were reading them. They weren't assigned to me in a class is what I'm telling you, you know, so I would sort of discover them on my own. And that's a really exciting way to learn something. And so all of those, all of those classics that I read as a kid, and then I would reread them, um, have had tremendous influence on me and and then especially Alice Munro has been a very big influence on me and the stories of William Trevor when I discovered him years ago in the New Yorker um he's been a huge influence on me as well you mentioned earlier during our interview that fiction was something that really again appealed to you and resonated with you why is that line of writing, the world of fiction, something that is really so important for you to tell stories in that universe? You know, I, I always remember, and I don't remember what book it was, but I remember as a young kid reading a book of fiction, some grown-up piece of fiction, and I remember thinking, oh, I've had that thought. And I don't even remember what the thought was. I don't remember what the book was, but I remember thinking, oh, I've had that thought. And that was so exciting to me to realize that somebody else had had a similar thought that I had had because it wasn't a thought that I had put it into words. And that was my first understanding that fiction can get you inside the head of another person because um, that's what I'm trying to do as a fiction writer is to get somebody inside the head of another person so they can think, oh, I've had that thought as well. Or, oh, I can't believe it, but I actually did want to steal my daughter-in-law's bra or whatever. You know, all it does. <laughs> I mean, you know, so, and believe me, people apparently have wanted to, because when I went on the road with Olive Kittredge, there were a number of women who would lean down and say to me, how did you know about <laughs> daughter-in-laws? And I don't have a daughter-in-law, so I obviously didn't know, but I knew something. Anyway, that's, that's what, that's what I'm trying to get at is the part of the human mind where 
people are not telling other people or maybe not even telling themselves their darkest or not even that dark thoughts, but that area of the mind that remains private always. I want to enter that and allow the reader to experience it as well. What would you say, I know we talked about uh, Olive Kittredge winning the Pulitzer and, and on the surface, I mean, that's such a high, incredible honor for an author to, to receive. Is, is that your proudest accomplishment or do you have others that really stand out to you? Was it your first book? What was it that really, if you had to pick your, your seminal moment, your highlight of your, your writing career, what would stand out to you? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. I think I think um, my name is Lucy Barton was an opening of a different kind. I mean, it was a, was a um, motion forward for my career. I mean, for my writing style, I think I pushed a boundary with that. And, um, and I have a, a sense of accomplishment with that kind of book, having written that kind of book. But um, I don't, I don't really think, there was anything, actually, my name is Lucy Barton was long listed for the Man Booker Prize. That was pretty cool. <laughs> so almost as good. As yeah. <laughs> well, hey, if people are paying attention and they're bestowing these honors and accolades, you know, you're doing something right when it comes to your writing style. Um, but switching from the written word to the multimedia side of things, I did want to ask you, um, when Olive Kittredge was transformed into the Emmy Award winning miniseries, did you have any concerns about your work not getting misinterpreted, but the translation from the written to the screen? What were what was your thought process behind how that all played out? Right, I would I would have had um, serious doubts because I don't write books to have them made into films, but I I would have had serious doubts. But it was Frances McDormand; she was the driving force, and so I knew because um, not just because I had seen her in different um, shows and movies, but you know, I met her, we met and talked a number of times and I realized, okay, she absolutely can do this. And that was the reason that I was okay with it because of Frances McDormand. And I said to the screenwriter, I had one long conversation with her over the phone and I said, you know, you just do what you need to do. And she told me later that that had been very helpful because I was giving her permission to go ahead and and make it however she needed to make it. And I look back and I think, wow, so glad they did a good job because, you know, I do, but I somehow thought they would and they did. Um, but it was because of Frances McDormand that I was able to hand that over. And the yeah. same with Laura Linney and my name is Lucy Barton. I mean, she played Lucy Barton on Broadway and also in London for a six week run. And it, again, it was because I had met Laura Linney and I knew she could do it. It's kind of one of those cliched questions, but I have to throw it out there. Your, your arc, your career journey, do you ever take a moment to kind of pinch yourself and say, I cannot believe that, you know, I've gone through what I've gone through and I've had these accomplishments because it's just, it's such an awesome story to get to tell here, Liz, of what you've accomplished. You know, that's funny because I think um, mostly I have not had those moments because I've been writing, you know, I've been writing more and more lately. I mean, the books have been coming out faster. So there was a tremendous amount of travel and press and all that kind of stuff that doesn't give me a moment to reflect. But with the pandemic, um, I have a couple of times actually thought to myself, you know, maybe in the middle of the night or something thought, wow, (laughs) look what you did. (laughs) But probably just a couple of times. (laughs) 
you got to take stock and celebrate the victories, especially yeah. with the chaotic nature of life here in uh, Oh, man, I know. I know, exactly. Have you found yourself having more uh, time to write, more topics that come to you that are maybe inspirational uh, for future works since we've been in this kind of work-from-home environment? You know, it's interesting because I had just turned in a book, which will be coming out next fall, um, and then the pandemic occurred. And, and so I almost thought I should write an epilogue. And then I realized, no, I'm not going to write an epilogue because I want the way that book ends. I like the ending to be exactly what it is. And I don't want somebody to turn the page and start an epilogue. So I, so I started the epilogue as a separate book. And then, um, but a couple of months before the election, I realized that there was a tension that was just too extravagant for me to be able to focus that well on, on my um, work. So I've had, I have different thoughts and I have different ideas and there are certain things that I have seen um, up here in Maine pre-election and stuff that have, you know, may come to fruition, but I have not found it to be the most um, fruitful time for my work because of the level of anxiety that rumbles below everything. I want to take it back to your career at Syracuse. You dropped out but you came back, you finished off your degree. And I know that yeah. you're active with the College of Law. I know that you'll speak at alumni reunions, alumni weekends. You'll kind of give back and, and however you can to our uh, aspiring law students. What would you say was the impact that Syracuse University and the College of Law had on your career? Well, first of all, I loved Syracuse University. I loved it the moment I saw it. And I went there sight unseen. I had never seen you know, I didn't visit the campus or anything like that. I just flew to Syracuse and there I was. And I loved, I loved it. The moment I saw Syracuse University, I just loved it. It just felt wonderful. And then when I started law school, I noticed, um, just because I dropped out doesn't mean that I wasn't appreciating law school. So don't forget that. Because I noticed at the end of the first semester, I'll never forget it. I realized when I went home that I thought differently as a result of those um, core courses and that one semester. And I understood that people, and it was so interesting because I realized there were people around me, you know, who were perfectly intelligent, but I thought, but they're not thinking clearly. They're not thinking well. And that's how much law school, even in that brief amount of time, changed my way of thinking. And I think that what happened was, um, you know, the emotional part, and I have always had too many emotions, was stripped away because it's the law and you you're looking at it legally and that and that was so good for me it was so helpful for me to get all those extra emotions stripped away and to just look and think legally and and i understood that and i understood that it was good for me um so i think i you know to for me to have gone to syracuse law school was a really good thing i mean i'm sorry i was a bad lawyer but that's different from being, you know, <laughs> it's different from being a law student. So I think it was, it was really important and, and there were good professors and, and I, and I, I will just never forget that feeling of understanding that I thought differently and recognizing when I went home that, you know, other people were not thinking differently. <laughs> so. it, it's, it's really cool to hear you have that that moment of the realization of, yeah, you know, you're, you're thinking differently. You're stripping down your emotions yeah. from the thought process. Not a lot of people I think are, are self-aware at that age to come away with that takeaway. So I, I yeah. commend you for having that, yeah, that realization. It was, 
it was very clear to me and it was really interesting. Yeah. Is there any sense of how Syracuse and your time at the law school impacted and influenced your writing style? Well, I think in a way, yes. I mean, I think, you know, for many years I thought, wow, I wonder if that was like a wrong turn in the road, but it wasn't at all because I think that, um, I honestly think that the way my, you know, the change in thinking that I was just discussing, I think that actually eventually made its way into my work. I mean, when I was talking about, I hope that I write clean sentences, that's part of what I'm talking about. It's like to get the excess away, we don't need the excess. We just need the storyline. We need to make the person feel that they're completely with us, but we don't need anything else. And I think I really do believe that my legal training um, was, was a part of that ultimately. What advice do you give uh, when you happen to either be speaking to a class of law school students or students in general uh, who are considering, you know, getting into the written world, getting into the, uh, the author uh, landscape? What advice do you give to those students? Just don't stop. If you really want it, if you really, really want to be a writer, then just don't stop. Just keep reading good sentences and trying to write good sentences. Just keep reading and writing and reading and writing and don't stop. And if you do stop, that's fine. It just means you didn't want it that much. And then you'd probably be a much better lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) You talk about not stopping uh, if you want to continue with this profession. And clearly your accomplishments have have been immense and you've made a a big impact and you're, you're doing great work as an author. Is there a topic that you really have been dying to write about? I guess what, what's coming up next for you down the pike? Well, it's funny because I was just looking through some, some experimental manuscripts, you know, things that I had sort of started. And um, I guess the answer is, I don't know. And if I knew, I wouldn't be able to tell you <laughs> because it's just, because it's not good for my work. I mean, like there's always for me, there has to be a sense of furtiveness about my work. It has to be private until it goes public. You know, it has to be just something between myself and the reader. And, and like we're in a little, you know, toad hole together or something. So I can't talk about my future work, but I'm not sure. <laughs> anyway, I don't really know anyway, but if I did, I wouldn't tell you. That's my point. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, no, listen, we have to ask the questions because we yeah. have a captive audience that wants right. to know uh, what's up next? I, gu- I guarantee you the one best way to find out uh, what is happening. There's a great website that Liz has, elizabethstrout.com. That's S-T-R-O-U-T.com. Uh, it's a great resource for all of her works of fiction that have been produced so far, including the seven we've mentioned here so far on the podcast. Liz, whatever you put your mind to, I know you will succeed. I'm glad <laughs> you did not succeed in the world of law as an attorney because it's been a privilege right. <laughs> to have you on here as an author talking well, about your works on the podcast. Thank you so much, John. It's been really lovely to talk to you. It really has been. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for checking out the latest installment of the Cuse Conversations podcast. You can find our podcast on all of your major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You can also find our podcast at alumni.syr.edu slash Conversations and anchor.fm slash Conversations. My name is John Boccasino signing off for the Cuse Conversations podcast. <laughs>